My title for you this morning is simply, The End Has Come. The End Has Come. Church, we are being reminded today that God's Word counts. That what He speaks, He backs up with action. That when He gives a warning, He does what He says. And that the decisions that we make will ultimately lead somewhere. If we choose to live a life that is against the will of God, that is unrepentant, that is going against the current of his commandments, it's only a matter of time before he brings justice to you and to me. Amen? Just to recall to your attention a few of the phrases that have been used from the first chapter of Amos to the eighth. For three transgressions and for four, that's how the book began. The lion has roared in chapter three, verse eight. I will deliver up this city, chapter six, verse nine. I will never again pass by them, in chapter seven, verse eight. And of course, here, in chapter 8, we see numerous examples of God's declaration of judgment. We've been told numerous ways from the beginning of this book that God will not tolerate the intolerable forever. We're just one chapter away from the conclusion of Amos in chapter 9. This morning, God's word is found for us in Amos chapter 8. And that is what we are calling the end has come. I have two simple points for you this morning, probably the shortest message I've ever preached here at our church. So hold on or you might miss it. Point number one, the fourth warning sign. The fourth warning sign. If you recall from last week, we went through in chapter 7 of Amos three warning signs. He gave the warning of the locusts, and then the warning of the fire, and then the warning of the plumb line. We've got five warning signs in total. This morning, we're looking at the fourth. That's how it begins, and we're going to say verses one through approximately eight. People of faith have always had a responsibility to God when it comes to the less fortunate. Let me say that again. Faith is in the pudding doesn't really matter what you say you believe if what you say you believe is not demonstrated in your actions. The Apostle James said it this way, you speak to me of your faith, but I will show you my faith by my, what's the word? Works. In other words, anyone can pontificate and opine about how faithful they are and how spiritual they are, but at the end of the day, your faith is only as good as the work that demonstrates your faith. Amos chapter 8, looking at the word of the Lord, it says, hear this in verse 4, you who trample on the what? On the needy, and bring the poor of the land to what? To an end, saying, when will the new moon be over? And then jumping down a little farther, when will the Sabbath come to an end so that we can sell wheat, etc.? couple of things I want you to note here, the first of which being God has an expectation of his people when it comes 
to their treatment of the less fortunate. There are a few reasons for this. The first is this. We are all, every man, woman, and child, made in the image and likeness of God. Say that again. First of all, we are all, every man, woman, and child, made in the image and likeness of God. Our status here on earth doesn't determine whether or not we're created by God. And if we're created by God, then we're made in his image and his likeness according to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. There in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we have what we refer to as the first intertrinitarian conversation. It's a record of the creation account, and there God says, let us make man in our image. And in our likeness, you hear the plurality there? Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Many people have debated as to what this plurality could possibly be referring to. Is God speaking of himself, of his attributes? Is God including the angels in this conversation? Well, those are all anti-Trinitarian positions. If you are a Christian and you hold to the truth, the biblically revealed truth that God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons and yet one God, then Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 records for you the first intertrinitarian conversation when God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit present at creation, speak amongst each other and say, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Meaning that we, you and I as human beings, have the capacity to reflect his nature and his attributes and his qualities. What's more, say amen if you're listening, we have the capacity to know him. And therefore, it matters how we treat people because all people, every man, woman, and child is made in the image and likeness of God. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 2. The rich and poor meet together because the Lord made them both. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 31. Whoever oppresses the poor insults his maker. But radical depravity, the biblical doctrine that teaches us the seriousness and thoroughness of our sin, has taken that image and likeness and distorted it so that sometimes we wonder if we really are made in the image and likeness of God. Because while the Bible's truth is that every man, woman, and child is made in the image and likeness of God, we can, you and I, testify to the fact that we are not only guilty of terrible sins, but we know that others are too. So how do we justify the fact that we're made in the image and likeness of God and yet are guilty of terrible and reprehensible sins? The only way we can explain that is by 
having a healthy, robust view of what the Bible calls sin. Not just a particular sin, but the idea of sin. The fact that it permeates us mentally, physically, psychologically, spiritually. Consider just a few of the following. We compromise justice and never think twice. We make the blessing of sexual intimacy within marriage a common commodity. You can hardly watch anything these days without it promoting sexual immorality casually with an expectation that everybody's already thinking the way that they're promoting. We exploit genders for our own selfish purposes. We exploit people because of the color of their skin. We call wrong right and right wrong. We excuse career criminals and abort the unborn. These are just a few examples of the way in which our failure to appreciate and understand the magnanimous doctrine of human beings being made in the image and likeness of God has affected our philosophies. But God says that judgment comes because of the sin that we entertain and accept on a daily basis. Think about that. Are you allowing yourself to be entertained by the kind of things God says he will judge? When is this judgment going to come? At least for the people of Israel, as we are, after all, in Amos chapter 8, the people of Israel, for them, the time has come. It says again, I'm going to read it. You can look at it with your eyes. This is what the Lord God showed me in verse 1. Behold, a basket of summer fruit, the fourth sign. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, I see a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said, the end has come. In other words, the time is ripe for judgment to happen. And he says, look at the words, if you would, with your eyes. He says, the end has come upon whom? My people. It's funny how we excuse the sins and the inexcusable in our own. But God doesn't do that because God is always just. I will never again pass by them. In other words, I'm not going to keep covering my eyes, as it were. I'm not going to keep skipping over this sin. First thing that I want you to remember and note is that we are all, every man, woman, and child, made in the image of God. The second thing I want you to note is this. According to God's sovereignty and providence, we are all dealt a different life to live. We are all dealt a different life to live according to God's sovereignty and providence. Say amen if you're listening. Some of us have more, and some of us have less. While there are many factors that contribute to this, there are some things that you and I could choose. There are still so many other things that we had absolutely no control over at all. Think about it. We couldn't choose our parents. We couldn't choose whether we were born into a two-bedroom apartment or a palace. 
we couldn't choose whether or not our family was healthy over a family that was predisposed to cancer or diabetes. We are raised in this humanistic philosophy that says it's their fault if you have a bad shake. And the reason that humanistic philosophy is pressed upon us is because there is no theology. Theologically speaking, we have a realization that we have to grasp, and that is this. I was born to Willine and Joe Myra. I was born in South Miami Hospital because that's what God ordained. Some of you are buying not theology, but philosophy. And you're looking at the hardship you're going through in life, and you're going, you know what? You're right. It is their fault. It's their fault I'm here. It's their fault I was born that, like that. It's their fault that these people are my parents. And that's why I try to this extent or don't try at all. That's why I shun every relationship or I have to have relationships to such an extent that I'm codependent. You and I have responsibilities that we must own as adults. But we must own those responsibilities in light of the fact that God has sovereignly and providentially placed us where we are and with whom we live for a purpose. And it's to his glory and to our good. And you're wasting your time looking for somebody to blame when it's God's providence that's put you where you are. The sooner you say, God, I am here because you said that in this year and at this city and at this time and in this country, I would live and go and do this or that. I will bring you glory. Isn't that what James says? So many of you say, tomorrow we will go to this and that town and we will sell this or that or make a profit. But what you should say is if it's God's will, I will go to this city and do this or that and make a profit. I shoot out an email. Cecilia always responds and says, I will be there, God willing. Because at the end of the day, you are not in control of your life. You think you are. You think you are, but you're not. You're going to pull out of here and you're going to get to Caribbean and the overpass and the light's going to turn red and guess what you're going to do? You're going to stop. And if you run through it and there's a Color Bay police officer, you know what he's going to do? He's going to stop you. You know why? Because you broke a law. You live a life within the boundaries of law and it's not only physical, it's metaphysical. It's not only realistic and practical, it's also philosophical. When we oppress the poor, we are placing upon them boundaries God never intended to be placed on them. It's not our job whether or not they're poor. There are some people that we're going to help out of poverty, and there are some people that are always going to be poor. They have some issues. It is what it is. This is not a message on that, so let's not obsess over it. What did Jesus say to Judas? The poor you will always have with you. We will always have poor with us. We will care for them. We need to remember, why? Because of the government, because of the president, because of our social situation. No! That man, woman, or child, it doesn't matter, is made in the image of God. I have a habit sometimes when I come up to a, a street, if I'm in the mood, 
which is fairly often, and um, speaking to the people that are asking for money. My kids love it. I roll down the window and I talk to them. Hey, man, what's your name? It's amazing how many people ignore them, ignore them and give them money, but never do the third option, which is maybe give them a dollar or two, which is not going to break anybody in this room, by the way, and ask them, hey, man, is there anything I can pray for you about? What's your name? My name's Joe. Now, if you're going to do this kind of thing, carry hand sanitizer. But your children need to see you caring for human beings that don't have a job like you, live in a house like yours, drive a car like yours. We don't know what their circumstances are. We don't know what hardship they went through that God in his grace and in his providence protected us from as we grew up, right? I come from a divorce household. 99% of us come from a divorce household. But, but I know that if I needed something, my mother or my father would provide it for me. There's a lot of people that grew up not, never knowing that feeling, never knowing that if they could lean, a support would be provided for them. You deal with a lot of them, Al, in your job. Al's a corrections officer. How many of those guys have absolutely no support? They don't know what they're doing. They're just trying to make it happen. I'm not excusing crime, but am I right or am I wrong? And when they get in that hospital bed, Al starts preaching the gospel because they can't go anywhere now. Friends, when we neglect to see the value of a human being because they are made in the image of li- in likeness of God, forget about their clothes, forget about their smell, forget about their mental illness, forget about what they own or don't own. At the end of the day, that man, woman, or child is made in the image of li- in likeness of God and providentially and through the sovereignty of God set up in a, in, a, in, a, in a collection of circumstances that God has ordained. When we fail to appreciate those things, we start to see them as an obstacle and an inconvenience rather than a different human being from us. And God says, when you do that, I'll judge you. Look at it. It's in the text. Hear this, you who trample on the needy. Hear this, you who bring the poor to an end in the land. Notice, this is a social crime. God expects those who have to help those who have not. We don't judge people according to their success in this life. We judge people according to this fact. They are made in the image and likeness of God. And you don't have to make all these wild deductions when you're at 184 in US 1. And you see that poor, desperate woman who's walking Homestead Avenue for the 30th year. You know who I'm talking about. And you say, that poor woman. Yeah, that poor woman. What has gotten a hold of her 
What has gotten a hold of her soul? Is she possessed? I don't know. Is she addicted? Probably. For a long time, my mother was ministering to a woman who she'd call her from a crack house somewhere over there, West Perrine. Willie, can you come pick me up? Married with three kids? How many kids she had? Three kids? In philosophy, we call it the law of diminishing returns. It means once you've had an experience, if that experience is at 10, in order to feel that sensation again, you got to go 12. Well, that's what the rock does to you. That's what drug addiction and sexual immorality and toying with cults does to you. At first, you, at first, wow, what a rush. It's a little nauseating. I don't like it. I'm going to try it again. But see, you don't get the same result that you did the first time because of the law of diminishing returns. And before you know it, okay, I'm simplifying a little bit, but some of you know what I'm talking about. Before you know it, 10 years has passed. You haven't kicked this habit yet. You're borrowing money from people, your employer, your friends, your kids, your parents, so that you can continue to chase because the law of diminishing returns owns you. And we look at some of these people and we go, look at that, look at that poor, per- look at that, look at that poor, desperate person. And you know what? Yes. Yes. But what we ought to be saying is, look at that poor person. God, God, help me to see what you see. God, help me to see that that woman, she has probably been through hell. Unimaginable circumstances. And whether she's put herself there, the drugs have put her there, some kind of combination of the two, that's not our, that's God is the judge, we are not the judges. What he is calling us to recognize in the context of Amos chapter 8 is this. The people who have need are still human beings made in the image and likeness of God. We might not understand their life. We might not understand their value system. But at the end of the day, God expects his people to care for those who are less fortunate. And when they don't, our second point is this. He will not forget. When we fail to be the people that God is calling us to be, the Lord will not forget. This is found in verses 11 to 14. If you'll look at it very quickly with your eyes, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, not a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. And they'll run to and fro and they'll seek the word of the Lord, but they won't find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. And those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba. You know, I don't put this in a vernacular because those phrases mean nothing. You know, knock on wood. 
what does that mean? You know, I got the job, knock on wood. What are you knocking on wood for? You're knocking on an inanimate inanimate, uh, 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 material? The wood helped you get a job? We conjure up the most atheistic, agnostic, stupid nonsense so that we will not give God his glory. That is ridiculous. We look like clowns, especially when Christians do it. I don't, that's the, that's the worst of all. I'm like, well, who's been teaching you, man? I got the job, knock on wood. Knock on wood. And then sometimes if they're in a situation where there's, there is no wood around, knock on wood. I'm like, come on, man. This is where, this is where we are? As God lives, oh, Dan, oh, the way of Beersheba, we'll swear, we'll promise, we'll please, knock on wood, send us a word from the Lord. Is this where we're at? So in the last half of this chapter, Amos chapter 8, this is a word about what covers the inevitable because it says in chapter 8, verse 7, the Lord will not forget The Lord will not forget. What exactly does it mean when the scriptures say that God will not forget? Well, first, it could mean that God possesses the possibility of forgetfulness, meaning that at any given moment, at any given time, God could fail to recollect a person or an event. The second is this. It could mean that while the possibility of forgetfulness is there, he certainly will not forget because he's God. The third thing that it could mean is this. It could mean something different, and follow me here. Throughout the Bible, there are interesting phrases ascribed to God to help us grasp him. When we use human language for God, it's called anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism is defined as, quote, an interpretation of what is not human or personal in terms of human or personal characteristics. So anthropomorphism is when we take human qualities and we ascribe them to something or someone that isn't human, in this case, in order to help understand them. In other words, anthropomorphism is used so that those things that aren't human can be better understood by humans like us. And case in point is when the Bible says in Isaiah 59.1, behold, the Lord's hand is not too short that he cannot save. It isn't saying that God has hands or arms. God is not 6'4", 220. That's not what it's saying. God is spirit, the Bible says. It's not about God being tall or short or having a wide wingspan. When Isaiah 59.1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not too short that he cannot save, what it's saying is that God can reach us. 
God can save us. God can find us in unspeakable and quote unquote unreachable places and he can speak to us there and he can reach us there because God's hand, so to speak, is not short. Amen? And so it is here. When Amos says that God will not forget, he's not saying that there's a possibility of forgetfulness in God. Listen, church, it's impossible for God to forget. God does not possess the quality of forgetfulness. If he ever succumbed to forgetfulness, he would cease to be God. But by saying God has not forgotten, Amos is saying, you're not getting away with the sinful bill that you've tallied. God has not forgotten. Again, it's inevitable. There's an echo throughout this chapter. Look at it with your eyes if, uh, as I read aloud. Chapter 8, verse 9. On that day. Chapter 8, verse 11. The days are coming. Chapter 8, verse 13. In that day. Sure, this is a reference to a particular day and event, but the idea is bigger than that. God is not saying that when the time of judgment comes, it will be a 24-hour day. No, instead, he's referring to a period of time. And if I may say so, not only the judgment, but perhaps the long, enduring consequences of that judgment too. Church, let me say this. Say amen if you're listening. God can forgive us. God can justify us. God can sanctify us and cleanse us in Christ. But that doesn't mean he's going to erase from our lives the consequences of the decisions that we've made. Verses 9 and 10 say that there will be darkness and the feasts will be filled with mourning. No more celebration. Verse 11 says that there's going to be a famine, right? Famine of the word. Verse 12 says that there's going to be a spiritual drought because God will become silent and will not speak. And people are going to go, have you heard anything from God? Travel up to Samaria. See if, see if anybody's up there. Anybody, no, nobody's heard anything from God in Samaria. Okay, go down to go down to Bethel. See if, see if you're down there. Nope, nope, nobody's down there either. Okay, go to the Mediterranean Go east, go west, go north. Somebody find a word from the Lord. The reformers used to call this deus absconditus in the Latin, the God who is unseen. There are times in our lives when we can't see him and we can't hear him. Sometimes the responsibility doesn't lie with God, it's with us. Sometimes we can't see him and hear him because we've allowed people and things and sin and consequences and habits and pleasures and preferences to get in between us and God. As it says in Isaiah, your sin has created a chasm between you and God. You see, when things happen that separate us from the Lord, we can't complain when we can't hear his word. And there's different kinds of hearing, by the way. Sometimes it's been a long time since we've heard his word. Sometimes his word is being spoken. 
but we ourselves do not register it because we have taken priority from his word and we've placed it someplace else. When the problems that are associated with sin come home to us, we will not get out of them lightly or quickly. There are consequences even when God provides feedback, uh, excuse me, uh, forgiveness. And they have to be endured by everyone, by you, by me, even those who think that they're invincible. We all have to endure the consequences of the decisions that we've made, even if we know we're forgiven, even if we know we're justified, even if we have been sanctified. Sometimes the consequences of our sin won't leave us alone, and I'm going to let you into a little secret. Sometimes the people that rooted for you to get involved in that sin when you leave the sin and you go, I'm going to walk with Jesus, I'm not doing this anymore, those people who were your buddies and rooted for you to get in the sin, they're the ones that won't let you forget. They're the ones that won't acknowledge you for who you are today. They keep trying to remember, remind you who you were yesterday. You know, when you're in Publix and you turn that aisle and you're like, oh my gosh, that's so-and-so, I got to go back to the toilet paper aisle. Because every now and then, God sends someone in your life to remind you of what he's redeemed you from. Verse 13 says, In that day the lovely virgins and the young men, which means that there is no age discrimination with the judgment of God, old, young, and everything in between, God is bringing justice. Doesn't matter, old, young, married, single, over all political spectrums, when God brings justice and judgment, he brings it from wall to wall. To close, let's remember that the judgment that would be ours by right, the condemnation that would be ours as a result of our rebellion against the Lord was placed upon a man named Jesus Christ. And in one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter writes these words. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he could bring us to God. Friends, that's the gospel. I don't know what you brought in here with you today. I don't know what God reminded you of. I don't know what popped into your mind while we're over here singing amazing grace. And your brain goes, remember when you did that? And you go, whoa, I'm in church. I'm not supposed to be thinking about that. I'm supposed to be thinking about him. And every now and then God, God allows those events in our life so that he can say, not that we aren't growing, progressing, changing, but because, because we need to be reminded sometimes of where God has brought us from. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he could bring us to God. That's the gospel.
You know the story of Jesus on the cross. The scripture says that Jesus, when he was crucified, was crucified with criminals to his left and to his right. And it says that during the crucifixion, everyone, including those criminals, were blaspheming. That's the word in the Greek, the blasphemeo. They were cursing him. And it says that about midday, 12 noon, the earth went dark. And with everything that was taking place, one of the criminals starts to correct the other criminal and say in so many words, brother, don't you realize what's happening here? We're getting what we deserve, but he's somebody different. Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Oh, that's great news, the thief says, and he rips his wrists and his ankles out of the nails, and he goes and he says, somebody hurry up and baptize me. Nope. He doesn't jump down from the cross and say, let me find an old lady to help across the street. I got to get some good works in here so that I can add to the satisfaction of Jesus and the gospel for me as a sinner so that I can be saved. Yes? Nope. What does Peter say? Peter says, Jesus suffered for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous, so he could bring us to God. 